This is Smart Women, Smart Power, a podcast that features conversations with some of the world's most powerful women. This one does actually really keep me up at night and worry me. It is the loss of crisis communication channels. And this is something that I think has not gotten sufficient attention with the breakdown of arms control. We feature thought leaders at all career levels, where we explore, among other things, the many contributions that women make to the fields of international business, national security, foreign policy, and international development. Does having women in positions of power influence the outcomes of decisions in these fields? Why or why not? Join me, Dr. Kathleen McInnes, director of the Smart Women Smart Power Initiative at the Center for Strategic and International Studies for these incredible conversations. This Smart Women, Smart Power podcast is supported by Lockheed Martin. Today, I am really thrilled to welcome my dear friend and colleague, Dr. Heather Williams, to the Smart Women, Smart Power podcast. For those that don't know Heather, she leads the Project on Nuclear Issues, otherwise known as PONY, at CSIS. And she has years of experience working on arms control, deterrence, and disarmament, topics we're going to get into during the course of our conversation today. She also happens to be a King's War Studies PhD alum. And how we met, I was thinking about it as I was getting ready for this, we met, I think, 11 years ago? That sounds right, which is kind of spooky. But yeah, and I think it was in London on a very nice spring day, similar to this one. Yes, that's right. <laughs> so we did our PhDs together and it's lots of fun and lots of bouncing ideas off of each other over the years. So welcome, Heather, to the podcast. I'm so thrilled to have you. Thank you so much, Kathleen. I'm literally sitting here smiling from ear to ear, just really excited for this discussion, but also just so excited with what you've done with Smart Women, Smart Power and the podcasts and discussions you've been having. So it's a real honor to join and thanks so much for inviting me. Oh, absolutely. So how did you find yourself working in or drawn to this world of national security? A lot of your career has been in the academic side of the house. What took you specifically into that academic world for a while? Well, I never wanted to be an academic. So I feel like uh, the universe conspired against me in a little bit of a getting me there at some point. The national security interest really started probably similar for a lot of geriatric millennials like me was one of my first memories of the news was watching the Berlin Wall fall down. And both my parents are very engaged in the news and current events and very patriotic. And so I remember them kind of sitting me down and saying, you need to watch this. This is going to be important. It was. And that kind of just sparked this general interest in the news and wanting to understand the world around us. But also, I grew up in a pretty homogenous environment in really far upstate New York and was just always curious about what else was out there. What did the world look like outside of of the Adirondacks, outside of uh, New England and New York? And so just got really curious about different cultures and languages. I actually was a Russian studies major and really fell in love with Russian literature and thought that that was going to somehow be my path. I thought, oh, maybe I'll be a Russian translator someday and work in the State Department. And was in grad school. I took one class on WMD. And full disclosure, I took the class because it was from four to six on a Thursday, which was very conveniently aligned with the weekly 
graduate student happy hour at the bar next door to the classroom. That was part of it. But this one class happened to be taught by amazing professor and uh, defense intellectual and leader, Brad Roberts. And that class just got me hooked on nuclear issues. I got really fascinated with the psychological aspects of deterrence. I got hooked on arms control issues pretty early because I just saw arms control as this paradox of how do you compete and cooperate at the same time? It really doesn't make sense. That's how I got into the field. How I ended up in academia, as I said, I, I never wanted to be an academic. I got my PhD because I thought it would help my job prospects in Washington. And you may recall, I initially said, oh, I'm just going to be in London for a year or two. <laughs> and I, that didn't prove true. I stayed in London for a decade and was um, on faculty at King's College London. But the thing about academia that I really did draw me in, it was the independence. When you're an academic, especially if you're fortunate enough to get tenure, you can chase whatever question you want. You can say pretty much whatever you want. And you have this incredible platform and resources at your disposal to just chase your curiosities. And that really appealed to me. Engaging with students and younger people in the field and engaging with their curiosities, that was also just so exciting to me. That's how I left academia. And to be honest, I think, uh, I mean, there's a lot of reasons why I left, but one of them was being able to find a place that also lets you have those opportunities that I didn't expect I would have anywhere but academia. So that sort of turns to the decision that we're going to talk about today, which is one that I think a lot of our listeners sort of grapple with, which is a career shift and a career change, deciding to leave academia and move back into the policy spaces as director of the Project on New Issues. What was your, th- what, what were you, as I say, what were you thinking? That that's <laughs> no, but like, you just spent what the draw for academia was for you. How did that shift over time? And what was the draw of the policy community. I mean, you're not the first person to ask, what were you thinking to leave a tenured or tenure equivalent job? And it wasn't an easy decision. I didn't mean it like that. <laughs> no, no, no. But it's a, it's a totally fair question. It was a combination of things. Some of it was personal issues and being ready to move back to the U.S. I think there were there were probably three drivers. The first one, it, it actually was policy. I never saw myself as an ivory tower academic. I felt very fortunate that King's College London is not some ivory tower institution removed from the policy world. I always felt this kind of pull to be doing policy relevant work and making, quite frankly, just trying to make the world a better place. And when it comes to nuclear weapons, I really wanted to know that my work was going towards trying to prevent a single use of a nuclear weapon. And I found that all that academic freedom I had, I was using that basically to write policy pieces. That was one part of the draw. Another big part of it is the culture of publish or perish in academia, which really holds true. And I will take a shot at the academic, <laughs> the academy for just for a second, which is, you know, the academic publishing system, it's really antiquated and it's really slow. So for example, if I magically wrote a 10,000 word article for peer review on February 24th, 2022, it probably wouldn't be published in print for at least 12 months. And a lot happened in those 12 months. So I just didn't see academia as always having the tools to keep up with this rapidly changing and really complex world that we're in. 
There are some really important exceptions to that. For example, I want to give a big shout out to the War on the Rocks team, the journal that they put together, Texas National Security Review, and what they're doing with War on the Rocks. I think that that really should be a model for the way ahead, which is how you can do academic work in a timely fashion that also has policy relevance. But the academia as a whole, I just felt like this pressure to publish wasn't always aligned with the world that we're living in, especially on these issues. It might be different elsewhere. And then uh, the third reason actually was I wasn't massively impressed with how some academics responded to the war in Ukraine. I think the invasion was a turning point for a lot of people, regardless of which sector you were in. Academic Twitter was at its worst in spring 2022. Some academics who kind of, I think, saw it as an opportunity to say, oh, this proves my theory is right. Yeah. It's hard to see that when you know that people are dying in the midst of an ongoing war. And also just some academics got really nasty with each other. And if anyone academia is listening to this, you probably have a guess who in the nuclear scene kind of took a lot of the heat. And I I just felt like, I'm not sure that this is where I want to spend my professional energy is debating whether or not an ongoing war proves my theory. That just didn't align with me and my values. And I genuinely don't mean that as a criticism of people who have stayed in academia, who are, you know, I think doing incredibly important work that will help us understand this crisis and this conflict. I just felt that pulled a policy a bit stronger. Yes. And over time, it's quite fit anymore. We change as people, we evolve, we grow. What worked before doesn't necessarily work later. And it sounds like you and your personal and professional journey took a, a different path. The dress didn't fit anymore. Yeah, that's exactly what it was. And it wasn't like, you know, I, I have no regrets about having gotten a PhD or having done academia. I, I have very few professional regrets. It's like you say, it, things just shifted. I, I think one thing that was really important, though, it is always having a sense of your professional values and knowing what your priorities are going to be. So for me, independence has remained really number one kind workplace and good bosses is really important. Being appropriately compensated for the work that you're doing, having, you know, a meaningful impact on your community. And that can look a lot of different ways. Those values for me really stayed constant, but it got to a point where I feel like, do you know what? I actually think that I can pursue and live by those values a a bit better, just in a different setting. It's funny because, you know, when I was in, I had lived in DC before I got my PhD and I always said, I'm never going to be an academic And then when I was in academia, I said, oh, I'm never going back to think tanks. (laughs) I think the lesson is also never say never and never rule out one career pathway, just kind of staying open. And as long as you have the right values and you stick to those, then I feel like it usually works out. Well, yeah. And that also brings up a really important point, I think, particularly for our younger listeners who are just getting started in their careers that just because you start off in one place doesn't mean that you are locked in for life or that you can't make some significant changes. I remember thinking that you know, I was the coordinator of the Project on Nuclear Issues way back in the days of yore, thinking that because I'd been in that role that I was committing myself professionally to the world of things nuclear for my entire career. And that's manifestly not been the case, right? It bounced around in all sorts of different other places. It's okay to grow and change. It's okay to have something for a while and then move on. 
A hundred percent. And I also think that this is a, there's a bit of a generational difference here. You know, I think about my parents, like they stayed in the same jobs for 30 years, something like that. Whereas I look at some of the folks that I work with at Pony or, you know, across CSIS, and they seem much more open to moving around and open to trying out different experiences. And again, coming back to being a geriatric millennial, we're like you and I are somewhere in the middle of that, which is that, you know, you're right. Also, when I was in my 20s, I had thought, okay, this is going to be my life. This is my job. And this is just what I'm going to do. It was a really pleasant surprise to realize, no, you are allowed to change your mind. I often come back to Isaiah Berlin's essay, The Fox and the Hedgehog, where some people are foxes. And I feel like in DC, most people are foxes who are doing, trying to do a bunch of different things. And, oh, I want to touch every piece of the nuclear policy space. And I'm going to write in foreign policy and foreign affairs. And I'm going to do a Wall Street Journal op-ed. And I see some of these people doing this. And it's incredibly impressive. Whereas the academic side, I think, is often more hedgehog, where you have one topic that you just really deeply care about and you are allowed and encouraged to burrow quite deeply into that thing. When, you know, this class that I mentioned that really kind of turned me towards the nuclear space with Brad Roberts. And one thing that I remember Brad saying, this was when I was a student, was really talented people can do either a mile wide and an inch deep or an inch wide and a mile deep. It is very, very rare that you find someone who can do a mile wide and a mile deep. I often think back to that analogy, just as DC, people are trying to do so much. And I think there are some really talented people out there who do manage to go quite deep on them. And that's been, for me, a really nice kind of pleasant surprise about think tanks and CSIS in particular, is that this is not superficial and that you can do deep dives on things. Yeah. One of the things that this also sort of brings to mind is that there's getting a PhD and then there's academia. Right. And I remember when I was getting a PhD, I was flirting for a little while with the idea of trying to join the academy after getting my PhD. And I remember being told by my advisor, no, <laughs> no, Catherine, <laughs> you're, you're, you're too old. You're too far along. It's never going to happen. And so I guess that sort of prompts another reflection that I'd love to hear your thoughts on. There's a lot of work out there on bridging the gap between academia and policy. How successful do you think those efforts are right now? Not specific, there's that bridging the gap initiative, which isn't what I'm talking about. I'm talking about generally the interaction of academia and policy and whether the former meaningfully influences the latter these days or... Is there still more work to be done? I mean, the short answer is there's more work to be done, but a lot of progress has been made. Before I pull that apart, you know, when I left academia, I've been thinking about it and I I talked to a couple friends both in and out of academia about it. And what you, like you said, you know, the PhD is not just for academics. The PhD can teach you incredible skills, professional and personal and survival, <laughs> to be to be honest. But I remember when um, I finally, when I left academia and I did one of my first kind of public talks when I was at CSIS and a close friend who's in academia saw it and he came up to me afterwards and he said, I knew you couldn't stay in academia. You're just too joyful. <laughs> and I was like, there's joy in academia. And, and he said, there is, but people forget it sometimes. 
Whereas working in the policy space, I feel like there's a lot more interaction. There's a lot more collaboration. There is a lot more time for talking about what you love doing and chasing those curiosities. Whenever I see him, I, I'm always like, I still feel joyful. Just so you know. Joy is a good thing to have. <laughs> joy is a good thing to have. And, you know, with that said, again, like I feel joyful about my work, but I know plenty of people in academia who are also joyful about their work. And, and it comes through like, honestly. Honestly, I just have like the deepest respect for really, really good scholarship where you almost get a sense of the person coming through in some of these pieces and you get a sense for just how much they love this work. And they're also doing impressive work at the same time. So, you know, like uh, Fiona Cunningham, who's doing incredible work on China and nuclear, it's just an incredibly impressive scholarship. Uh, Mulford Brout Heghammer, Kristen Van Bruskard. There's a lot of people out there where I do think that that kind of sense of purpose and joy can come through in scholarship. To that question about bridging the gap, I honestly feel a bit torn on this one because I think I'm a little bit concerned, however, is that in the nuclear space, believe it or not, the funding landscape for nuclear research is really bad right now. And I think it would be a I think it's a combination of reasons. One of the biggest funders left the field right before the invasion of Ukraine, and that caused a bit of panic, understandably. For some folks, taking government money is complicated, and I can understand that. But really, it's that a lot of the big funders left or are leaving and shifting their focus to other important issues like climate change or AI or democracy promotion. And I think that before the war in Ukraine, there was this perception that nuclear weapons were kind of fading into the background, that there was a loss in public consciousness about nuclear weapons. And a lot of folks just maybe forgot they were there, just they weren't in the news as much and didn't think about them that often. And, you know, it's a stark reminder, there are still tens of thousands of nuclear weapons in the world that need to be maintained, need to be kept secure. We need nuclear risk reduction efforts. We need guardrails. And that that all kind of left a lot of the public awareness. I also think that there were a lot of initiatives, particularly in the 2010s, that really were primarily focused on nuclear disarmament, which obviously is important, but there's a lot of other aspects to nuclear policy. You know, nuclear weapons are not going away anytime soon. And that's the part of Barack Obama's Prague speech that a lot of people forget, that he said, this probably won't happen in my lifetime. I think that the funding landscape just changed. And so, but to your really important question about bridging the gap, absolutely progress has been made. And I think it's really significant, really important. But there were systems and resources in place that made that possible. I don't think we should take them for granted. And I don't think that that similar level of resourcing is guaranteed going forward. So this bridging the gap effort is something that really all generations that are interested and care about nuclear policy have to stay involved and have to stay committed to. It's so true. These are issues that you can never get complacent on, right? right. But somehow we got complacent, arguably. So looking at the strategic landscape today, what are the nuclear issues that you worry about? What's keeping you up at night? Mm. It feels like I have to pay attention to everything on nuclear at the, at the moment because it's everywhere. 
Obviously, events in Ukraine are getting the most attention, rightfully so. But, you know, there's a whole lot of other nuclear issues going on out there. Iran's progress and enrichment. There's potential DPRK nuclear testing. There is the constant fear of another border crisis or border clash in Kashmir between India and Pakistan. There's the potential breakdown of uh, the institutions that have really governed nuclear weapons for so long. I'll try to keep myself to maybe three. Three sounds good. Uh, There's more, but I'll focus on the number one thing. This one does actually really keep me up at night and worry me. It is the loss of crisis communication channels. Yes. And this is something that I think has not gotten sufficient attention with the breakdown of arms control. In February, Putin suspended Russia's participation in the New START Treaty. And on the surface, it might just look like, oh, well, these two are two countries that are in conflict. Why would they stay in an arms control agreement? Without realizing, with this arms control treaty came a really important communication channel. And at the height of the 2014 Ukraine war, there was a period where the U.S. and Russia had almost no communication, certainly no military to military discussions, nothing particularly high level. However, they did have arms control. And it's this communication benefit of arms control that I I think doesn't always get enough credit and enough attention. Mm -hmm. So the breakdown of New START Obviously, New Start's in a very strange limbo at the moment, but I don't think the signs are positive. So it's the breakdown of that because obviously all sides in, in this war are at risk of misunderstanding the other. Right. In some ways, we are all very foreign to each other. It's very hard to understand Vladimir Putin's logic a lot of the time. And so the risk of misperception, miscommunication, accidents, third parties getting involved and not having regular dialogues in which you can kind of reconcile those concerns, that worries me. Um, it takes all the heat out of it, right? Like Exactly. Right? It's not like the immediate phone call or the immediate response. It's Bureaucracy is wonderful because it can take the heat and energy out of issues and just turn them into routine. That's exactly it. And there's also kind of a tacit component to this, which is it also can be relationship building. You know, like when New Start was negotiated, a lot of folks on either side of the table, they knew each other already. They had already been talking in previous administrations or on the NGO side of things. And that's gotten really, really hard right now. And yeah, I mean, to add that other element to it, there aren't that many non-governmental dialogues left with the Russians either, which is quite understandable. And I'm not saying that there should be more, but it's that kind of breakdown of exchange of ideas. And as you say, these opportunities to kind of take the heat out of it. That worries me, especially as we seem to keep having more and more crisis flashpoints in in Ukraine. Yeah. Wow. So that worries me. Uh, The second thing that worries me is really the durability of U.S. alliances. I think you and I know this. I know that you know this particularly well, is that when you live in a foreign country and you hear from the allies directly what they think of the U.S. Yeah. And what they think of U.S. credibility, Mm -hmm. it is very different from what I hear around D.C. Yes, 100%. First and foremost is that the allies are not a monolith. NATO's now 31 members, so that's at least 31 different opinions. 
Mm-hmm. I mean, let alone the different opinions from within. Uh, we forget sometimes allies also have domestic politics and domestic pressures. And in some allied countries, their domestic publics have very strong views on nuclear issues that make it hard for them to be part of a nuclear alliance. Right. That is going to be really fascinating to watch how that, that gets managed. How do you incorporate these allies that have into a nuclear alliance? NATO is a nuclear alliance when they're in strong disarmament traditions. Exactly. I feel a bit odd worrying about alliance unity in the spring of 2023 when it seems to be at its height and NATO just got a new member. But the durability of that, and I don't mean over six months, I mean over a decade, particularly in facing, you know, NATO has started gazing even further east. So how do you maintain that alliance unity when also talking about how to address threats from China, things like emerging technologies, I think in general, I just worry that we take the allies for granted or that we don't sufficiently understand what their interests and their priorities are. And this is something where I I actually give the Biden administration a lot of credit for making allies a priority. And from what I've seen, the Biden administration officials are really trying to rectify this and to engage with them more. But from the allies' perspective, I hear this all the time in, in Europe, you probably do too, is folks saying, well... What happens if and when a new president is elected who isn't as interested in NATO? What do we do then? Right. And cohesion, unity, and questions about credibility. Do we mean what we say? Yeah. Those tend to be questions that are taken for granted in Washington, but nope, they're alive and well and and very, very important. They are. So my third thing that worries me, it is actually generational change in the nuclear field and specifically knowledge transfer. Yeah. That there are folks in their 50s, 60s, and 70s now who have negotiated arms control agreements, negotiated directly with the Russians. How do we pass on that wisdom to the generations after you and I? Because it's probably going to be a little while before we have another arms control negotiation. Right. So that piece of the knowledge transfer concerns me. I also think the further away that we move from World War II and the types of existential crises that countries faced then, the more difficult it really becomes to engage people on nuclear. You know, I was saying before that nuclear weapons kind of left the public consciousness. I think that keeping people not just aware of nuclear issues, but engaged and engaged enough to pursue careers in the field and to try to learn from previous generations that you and I were incredibly fortunate, I think, in some of our mentors in this space. And I just worry that that tradition will carry on. And obviously it's something Pony really prioritizes. And we have a lot of initiatives for bringing in early and mid-career folks and helping them build expertise and get mentorship. But across the field, it's knowledge transfer that that really does worry me on nuclear in particular, like obviously we need more folks in AI, we need more folks in the military and in general, I think we just need a lot more smart people getting involved with and committed to national security and defense. I guess to wrap up our conversation, when you look at your approach to nuclear issues, but also your approach to your decision to leave academia, do you feel that being a woman, that your gender has had an impact on those decisions or your approaches? And if so, why? But if not, why not? Great question. Being a woman 
has influenced how I engage with and how I got involved with the nuclear field. I'll say a bit about that. I don't think it really influenced my decision to leave academia, mainly because I, I kind of got to a point professionally, but also in terms of knowing what I wanted professionally, that I felt like I was kind of just interested in, pers- in chasing the values that I had. But in terms of engaging with the nuclear field, I mean, I feel really old saying this, but when I got my start, <laughs> um, you know, which was uh, like uh, 17, 18 years ago, there really were very few women in this field. I didn't really have a female mentor or a woman mentor until I think I was 30. Wow. And as a result, I was incredibly fortunate in the mentors that I had, but they were all men. And I remember at the time, the thing is, they all gave me great advice. And again, I, I think I really scored the jackpot with a lot of men who were my bosses and who became colleagues and really helped me hone my skills and my craft. I got really, really lucky on, on that side. But I, I do remember being younger and in my 20s, having some pretty unpleasant experiences with men in the field. And I do remember saying to myself at one point, I really hope that someday I can be the woman that younger women can go to when this happens. Because some of those experiences, it's really hard to go to your boss who might be the same age as your dad and to tell him. And you don't want to admit, and sometimes it's like, oh, you don't want to be the problem. You don't want to say, look, this made me uncomfortable. Sometimes there aren't great options for dealing with it. You, you know, especially for me, at least at that age, I wanted to show like, I can handle anything. I'm not going to be the one to ruffle any feathers. I'm going to be the one who gets on with it and just does a really great job. Yeah. And as a result, I probably let some things go that I shouldn't have. And I just remember thinking, you know, it would just be really nice if there was an approachable woman in this field that I could talk to discreetly. I've never really questioned leaving the nuclear space, but I have often thought, Wherever I go, whether I'm in academia or in think tanks, I just really want to make sure that I am kind of that person and that I can be available, you know, if anyone has those similar experiences and and just wants to talk. You know, looking around now, there's such amazing women in this field. I just, you know, including you and a lot of our colleagues here around CSIS, like I look at the international security program here, and I think we have more uh, women directors than men at this point, which is really inspiring. And I just feel so lucky that, you know, in a lot of ways, the field's improved. But for me, it it wasn't necessarily a substantive issue or anything like that. I, I just always felt like I just kind of want to be somebody who can, you know, be supportive to other women, but really to anybody who's just starting out in the nuclear field and um, feel really grateful that I, I landed at Pony where I get to do that and where your office is across the hall from me. Yay! <laughs> but it's so true. It's not taken on this role at CSIS. And, and as I think about what I want to do, it's not just representation for me, at least. It's about building a community. Absolutely. That we actually want to be it. Like be what we want to see. Yes. And it's also about building a more diverse an inclusive community because it isn't just about that you want people to feel seen. It isn't just about being that resource there for them. It, it genuinely makes for better collaboration and better research and analysis. Yes. And I have seen that in every single place that I have worked. 
you're absolutely right. It isn't just about, I'm always opposed to being thought of as a token woman. I, I certainly don't want to be a token woman. I don't want to be a token woman on a panel, but diversity and inclusivity, it is about people feeling seen. It's also about doing a better product most of the time, I think. Yeah. Yeah. Well, thank you so much, Heather. Thank you. And sharing with us, you know, it's such an important decision important life decision to leave the academy and why because it's a very hard decision to leave because there's so much work involved to join it and to to stay in it that the decision to leave is quite a profound one but it speaks to how you've been open to the universe and open to the possibilities that your values and your priorities can be better accomplished elsewhere so Thank you for that. I know that that's going to be meaningful for a lot of our listeners. Thank you so much. This was a really fun conversation. I thought we would just be talking about nuclear weapons in Ukraine and Belarus. And this was, um, I thought, much more interesting and fun discussion. So thanks for that. (laughs) (laughs) You're so welcome. (laughs) Okay. Thank you. Subscribe to the Smart Women Smart Power podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to great content. Be sure to follow us on Twitter at Smart Women, or you can follow me on Twitter at KJ McInnes1. Thanks for listening, and join us next time. This Smart Women, Smart Power podcast is supported by Lockheed Martin.